Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. This is Eric Mann, your host, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite cities, New York City. I was born in Brooklyn, and one of my favorite people, James Berg, who's going to talk to us about the New York City elections and the implications for the movement in general. James, how are you doing? Hi, Eric. How are you? It's great to hear your voice and be on the show. So, listeners, you're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. James and I have known each other for a really long time. He was an organizer with West Harlem Environmental Action for many, many years, one of the few there's this sort of history of a very few number of white organizers who really worked in black, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Chicano neighborhoods and actually built a base, were trusted. And James, you're one of them, and I'm really happy to know you. Thank you so much, Eric. i very, very happy to know you and consider you a friend and a mentor and someone who I learn from every time I talk to you, Eric. So happy to be with you on, on the show today. Well, James, you know, uh, we were involved in an insurgent campaign, Jenny Martinez for City Council, and very interesting experience. You know, I'm allowed to talk about now because it's no longer an election. You know, we were no longer there. But we certainly got in at the ground floor of just beginning. You know, we were a grassroots organizer thinking, hmm, let's run for the city council. But you got into some big-time stuff. So we'll come back to that later about your own experiences. But let's start with the mayor's race and the ranked voting and the politics of it all in New York. Go through the four major candidates. Eric Adams, right? Maya Wiley, who I would have voted for. Catherine Garcia and God knows Andrew Yang. Go through each person from the point of view of your perspective first and then Tell us about the, also the campaign, you know. So let's start with sort of a thumbnail sketch of each candidate and how they position themselves. Then I'll come back to some other questions. Sure, and I'll focus on the four, Eric, but just uh, for your listeners, it actually was five, I would say. Okay, good. Until, until a certain point. Uh, Scott Strainer, who is currently the New York City Comptroller and who's been involved in New York City politics probably since he's been a teenager, um, he was actually, I would say, the progressive front-runner. Working Families Party had endorsed him. A number of the sort of leftist, uh, progressive, nonprofit organizations endorsed Scott Strainer. But he had some uh, sexual assault allegations come to light. Uh, I'd say, God, I can't remember exactly when those happened, probably around April or so. And his campaign really just plummeted after that. And then it became the four who you mentioned, but Scott Strainer actually, and there's a lot of good articles that have been written about it in The Nation and The Intercept, and I'm sure many other publications that, you know, sort of talk about those allegations and the demise of the Scott Strainer campaign. And I, I suggest to your listeners, if you're interested in 
New York City election to take a look at happened with Scott Strainer's campaign because he was the progressive choice for a lot of folks before the allegations. Um, and there are, some, just to be clear, without going into there are some challenges to those allegations, right? That's what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's someone who has, I think, a complicated history in New York politics. Some people have viewed him as a very establishment-oriented uh, politician. But he did, you know, do a lot of things as the comptroller. And he, you know, endorsed many folks um, in the sort of DSA WFP landscape that a lot of other politicians didn't want to endorse um, early in their, their career. And so he's definitely, he was trying to build a um, more of a career more recently as a progressive and was getting a lot of, you know, support from the progressive community. But that the bottom did fall out very quickly Got after these Okay. Start with Eric Adams. So Eric Adams, he's, uh, unfortunately, from my point of view, Eric, he is going to be the next mayor of New York City. Um, he is the current borough president of Brooklyn. He was a former police officer, state senator. Uh, Eric Adams is, so whichever way the wind blows, it seems he's going to blow, but it seems to always blow for him in the sort of more moderate center, even in some, you know, for New York standards, right, you know, um, right wing, you know, sort of orientation. He definitely ran a campaign around public safety. He definitely was adamant and vocal about being the anti-defund the police candidate, as was Andrew Yang. But if you look at Eric Adams a little bit closer, I mean, he has deep ties to the real estate industry in New York City. He definitely has, over the years, sort of walked that middle line. He was for marriage equality, but he also said some things against stop and frisk. But then he's taking a lot of money from the real estate industry, from the charter school industry, and he definitely supports not really publicly as much as like someone like Trump did, but he definitely stands by the NYPD and, and the police officers. So Eric Adams is sort of the center right. Right. I would even say right wing candidate in the Democratic primary. Yeah, uh, hold it right there, James, because one thing we want to come back to as a theme is, you know, the country rises or falls on race and police. It doesn't rise and fall on economic populism. And that's been the problem that, you know, you could say the guy is a tool of the real estate agency, real estate industry, but until you win the argument on police, you know what I'm saying, that that's just not going to win elections, it's not going to change the country. So that's what I think. And especially a black man, Tom Bradley was a L.A. police officer. <laughs> so he ran also as a pro-corporate moderate on police. So we'll come back to Eric Adams, right? So now sure. let's talk about Maya Wiley, who I would have definitely worked for had I been in New York City. She did, especially after getting the endorsement of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, radically jump in the polls, came in a close third, as I understand it. Tell me about her campaign on the sort of on the merits first, and then we'll get into the intricacies of how all these things played out. Sure. So I, there were some candidates. There was a woman in particular named Diane Morales who ran as sort of the most left and the most radical in the primary. But uh, Maya was sort of the, the, the person right next to Diane Morales. Maya had committed to defunding the police by, I think it was a, a billion dollars. She was very much opposed to charter schools and many of the rezonings, which New York City has faced recently and even in the Bloomberg years. So she was really, I would say, especially after Scott Greener, 
sort of plummeted in the polls, she became the natural choice for many of the, the folks in the progressive community and on the left. But I, I have to say her campaign, I think, I don't know what it was, Eric, that she lacked, but there, there was never really the sort of uh, on-the-ground presence that I really expected from a campaign like Maya Wiley's. I was organizing during the campaign in northern Manhattan and Washington Heights and Inwood and Marble Hill. And it was it's sad to say, Eric, but I very rarely saw uh, organizers or volunteers or posters or anything to sort of even acknowledge that her campaign was, was present. So on the policies and on the issues, I think she was by far the best choice of the candidates we had. And I voted for her number one myself. But I think her campaign lacked the real ground game that was needed to go against the money, the interest that, you know, the other campaigns had. Because we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later. But uh, there was a ton of money that came in from these super PACs. Right. And they all supported, for the most part, Adams Yang and, in some cases, uh, Ray McGuire and Catherine Garcia. This wouldn't shock you, James, but, you know, when Channing ran for city council, we had, <laughs> to say the least, very little money. We had enough money to pay all the fees. <laughs> we got an office, which was great. But all we did every day was stay in the streets. Yep. You know what I mean? I mean, that's woke up in the morning, and we walked the district. But when Channing needed to get the signatures, we thought 500 signatures were going to be kind of easy to get. It seemed like a good number until they realized they had to be in the district. They had to be registered. They had to have the exact right address, et cetera. And we luckily ended up in front of an Albertson supermarket and a Ralph's in the heart of the district. And we were out there six, eight hours a day during Thanksgiving. It was, uh, oh, my God, there were only about six or eight of us. And we all worked like six, eight-hour shifts. And we got those signatures. So. Oh, yeah. How could Maya Wiley, I mean, one of the things I'm asking you, because you're an organizer, you know, why wouldn't you love having a ground game besides the fact that you needed to win? You know what I mean? We love the ground game because that's where we live. Yeah, no, the ground game is essential. And even in a huge city like New York, not enough people are voting. Not enough people vote in municipal primaries. I think it was around 800,000 people who ended up voting in the New York City primary out of a city of over 8 million people, Wow! most, most of whom are registered Democrats. So, of course, 800,000 votes, that's still a large number. I understand. But you just need 50% plus one. You're just thinking about it from a let's get across the finish line perspective. So, you know, I don't know. I wasn't on the Maya Wiley campaign, Eric, so I, I don't want to be an armchair quarterback on their campaign. But, you know, I don't know how much money they were able to raise in comparison to the other candidates, but I know they weren't able to raise as much as Adams and Yang. And I know that they didn't have the super PAC support that those candidates had, even though you're not legally able to you know, coordinate with those PACs. Those PACs, and I hope we have time to talk about that, because they provided millions of dollars in support of these other candidates, hedge fund folks, real estate folks, charter school folks. They were pumping money into this race, and Maya Wiley was not obviously getting their dollars. So the only way to compete with that is the ground game. And... I just didn't see her campaign ever having that moment where the New York City progressive community just galvanized around her. You know, I think there was a fracturing, unfortunately, yet again, between several candidates. And then by the time it got to the point where AOC endorsed Maya Wiley, 
I don't want to say it was too little too late because I respect AOC and the work she's doing, but I think for a lot of folks, like, it was a little too little too late. You know, the the campaign was almost in its last, I think, three, four weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was, yeah. But let me just ask you this, because I agree with that. Uh, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ground game as great as I believe it is from 3,000 miles away? I mean, you know, my picture of her and the campaign that she ran, which was for Congress, that she lived on the streets, uh, built her own, you could say, left-wing machine on the streets. Is that mythology or <laughs> or uh, or closer to truth? I don't live in AOC's district, so I don't actually know the, the real presence of her on the ground game. But I think that what you see from afar, Eric, is probably pretty close to what you think it is. She definitely, in her 2018 win, right. definitely won because of the merits of her ground game. And she continues to organize. I mean, she and her, it was, I think her pack is called Courage for Change, right. or Courage to Change, I believe. And when it came out in the news in New York City that her pack was going to have a questionnaire for candidates to fill out, right. that was like, it was like the biggest news of the, of the week, you know, like just the fact that AOC had a questionnaire. Right. This wasn't even that she was making an endorsement. And so all these campaigns, whether it was for city council, mayor, comptroller, borough president, you name it, they all wanted to apply for this uh, coveted endorsement. And then when she actually did it, she only endorsed a few candidates. She did endorse Maya. But what it was was actually more of like uh, for the folks who applied, if they met, I think it was a 30-point program that she had people fill out. <laughs> right. Uh, if they met the criteria, it wasn't like you got the endorsement necessarily. You just sort of got like the star next to your name that you met AOC's 30-point plan. So wow. I think the fact that people – and I have, I have another anecdote, which maybe is connected to this, Eric, in a second. But the fact that you had so many candidates just jump – I mean, unions can't get that level of excitement. Right. If, the transit, if the transit workers union who – you know, and I should know offhand how many workers the TWU represents in New York City, but – Huge. It's the largest right. you know, transit agency, I believe, in the Western Hemisphere, if not definitely North America. And, you know, they have endorsement applications, and no one's excited to fill it out as much as they were to fill out the AOC one. Uh, not to say that the TW is not important, because they very much are, but AOC is a very, very important person in New York politics. And I personally, I just wish she would have put her name to Maya Wiley a bit sooner, and we could have built more together, because if AOC says jump, a lot of the activists say how high. Well, you could count me in that group. If, yep. <laughs> if I was in New York, that would be my answer to her question. <laughs> I wish there were more people I admired. You know what I mean? I wish there were more people. I mean, even when just staying with her, I mean, when the thing happened about the young woman who was denied, uh, I should know her name, but denied the Olympics based on marijuana, oh, yeah. and she said... This whole thing is colonial. She's the only person who uses, of course, she's from Puerto Rico, but uses an anti-colonial, not just anti-racist frame to try to explain the politics of race in this country. Very few elected officials want to go beyond disproportionality or even discrimination. So I am a big admirer her, and we can come back to her at the end of the show, James, more about what you think her future is and your thoughts on how it's all going to shake out at the end, okay? We'll come back to that. Is that okay? 
That sounds great, Eric. So now tell us about Catherine Garcia. So from my point of view, Eric, Catherine was sort of the technocrat who's going to, like, just fix everything. Um, You know, COVID obviously has changed everything in our world. And in New York, we were the epicenter for many, many months, as as was L.A. And New Yorkers, I think over it's about 30,000 people lost their lives in the city. So it's been a, a devastating year and a half for the city. And I think that she ran as a candidate that she thought as the head of the sanitation department, that she could get things done and that New Yorkers just wanted to get stuff done and fix the problems. So she kind of ran this like technocratic, I know how to, you know, move the levers of government kind of person. I think also too her last name, from my understanding, she was married into a, a Latino family and even her last name had like some like, you know, appeal to it. Of course, of course. You know, you got to use what you got. And, so she ran a good campaign, but what it really was, was I think, well, I don't want to say what was. I wasn't on her campaign. I want to summarize something that bluntly. But one of the major factors, which I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of who followed the races, she did get the New York Times endorsement. So for those, you know, Manhattan, Upper West Side, even certain parts of Brooklyn, Park Slope type of voters, that means a lot. The New York Times, despite its many critiques, it still means a lot to many Democratic voters. You know, not just in New York City, but definitely in New York City. And so that endorsement really put a spotlight on her. And in the debates, she never really stumbled. She never had a an oops moment. She just ran basically almost like a uh, a safe campaign. Right, right. But other than like I'm a technocrat and I know how to move the the, the you know the level levels of the bureaucracy, I never felt like she kind of branched out and. Yes, those neighborhoods do outperform. In, and it's funny, I'm talking this way because I'm an organizer. I don't like to think of myself as like a numbers guy who thinks about election districts and numbers. And you know, I try to think more, more holistically about it. But if you're running for mayor of New York, you've got to think about numbers. And even though those neighborhoods like the Upper West Side and Park Slope, they outperform, right. there are just fewer of those people. And I think that's one of the reasons why Eric Adams won. And we'll talk about this later, but Catherine Garcia's votes mostly came from those kind of neighborhoods. Right. And would you say overwhelmingly white and affluent? Yeah. Right? Not exclusively, but... No, right. Yeah. You you know New York, Eric, is as good as anybody. Uh, Park Slope and Upper West Side are not that diverse. Right. We'll come back. Tell us about The Heights, starting with what you think of the film, and then tell us about The Heights. Eric, to your listeners, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't even watched the film yet. I think <laughs> I'm just coming back. So anyone who has worked on the campaign can, re- can relate that there's quite a crash after giving up, you know, seven days a week, 15 hours a day for months. There's a, a bit of a crash. So I'm going to actually get caught up on all those fun things like movies. and sp- I, Yeah, I've been missing the basketball playoffs, and I know you like sports too, Eric. So I've even missed the basketball playoffs. So i, I got to get back into things like that. Well... That's uh, one thing I admire you. So I'll I'll keep my critiques and appreciations. I made them a little bit, but only more because you worked and lived in the Heights. I thought that would be fun. But all right, so let's move on to the races in the Heights, okay? Tell us about the election there. Tell us about the city council. You know some stuff about it, obviously. Tell us about Carmen de la Rosa. Sure. So New York City is the largest uh, municipal government in the country. We have 
51 council members. I forgot how many are in Los Angeles, but New York is a pretty big city to manage, and we have a full-time uh, city council. And over 30 council members were term limited, um, which was a really great organizing opportunity. And we have uh, two, you know, two term limits in New York for council right. and mayor. And we all do the too. Which is a good thing, I believe. Um, so there was a lot of energy and organizing and money that was put into this race, especially with the new mayor. And so in 2013, when we had the last open seat for mayor, groups like the DSA have really built more political power and muscle. So the Democratic Socialists had six candidates that they ran, two of whom are elected. So we're going to have two Democratic Socialist City Council members, which is very exciting. Yeah. The Working Families Party, who, you know, they're a national, well, so is DSA, national group. They endorsed many, many candidates. I don't know the exact number, many of whom also won. And then New York, like Los Angeles, is, you know, in some ways, I guess you could say blessed with a very robust nonprofit, for lack of better words, industrial complex. And many of those nonprofits have political arms, 501c4s, who also endorsed many candidates. So it was a very, very exciting and um, busy time in New York politics, especially coming off of the presidential election where Biden was successful in beating Trump. And we're poised, even though Eric Adams did it, unfortunately, win the primary, we're poised to have the most, by all measures, uh, progressive city council in recent history and the most diverse. So we're going to have a majority woman city council, which we've, I think, I don't know if we've ever had that in New York City, but the numbers of women candidates who have been elected went up, I think, by 12. Uh, we've had many, I think it's seven foreign-born in, you know, incoming city council members, which, again, you know, you know New York, Eric, it's a, a melting pot, and we're very proud of our, our diversity. And to have seven candidates who are not born in this country, I think, is, a, is an amazing accomplishment. The first black woman, LGBT black woman, elected into the city council, so there's a lot of exciting things happening, I think. And, you know, they will be a force to push back against what I believe will be coming from Eric Adams, a very moderate approach to governing, and perhaps even a pro-corporate one. We'll see what happens. But that, that progressive base is going to be super important to pushing back to whatever comes from the mayor. But then also we had other races, which you know, are less maybe uh, exciting to watch, but borough presidents and district attorneys, and many of those turned out very successful. And Comptroller, which AOC endorsed in the Comptroller's race, which I found was interesting. And so, you know, we definitely wish we would have gotten Maya in, but the council was definitely, I think, a success story. And if you have more broader questions, Eric, about how that went, I'm happy to, but I, I can also talk about my experience working on one of the council races. Yeah, I want to do both. The voice you're hearing is that of James Burke, a longtime community organizer who was very active in one of the city council races in New York City, worked in the height, significantly Dominican area at this point, so I do want to come back to. And as I said, he comes first as a grassroots organizer and then is trying to figure out his role in insurgent and progressive politics in New York. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM. This is Eric Mann, your host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national moving building show. And that's why we're happy to have people like James on, because we're trying to build 
a national network that's more functional through relationship building. One thing I want to ask you about is this, is that in a way, we've never had any level of true Democratic Party insurgency. I mean, virtually everybody who runs is, by any other standard, a center-right corporate gentrifier, from Bradley to James Hahn to Richard Reardon, who is the only mayor we actually work with, a liberal Republican from the business community who we actually could do better with. I said Antonio Villaraigosa, James Hahn, and now Eric Garcetti, who's going to inflict his crimes on the people of India very soon as the ambassador, and it's going to probably try to push India into a war with China, which is what Joe Biden wants him to do. So we know these people well. They know us. They know us by name. They know the Bus Riders Union for sure. They, they all know the strategy center. They all know me. And for the most part, in, what, 30 years of organizing, we've had almost no real advocates to even push a radical agenda. Interestingly, on the school board, it's been the opposite, where we presently have five votes on a seven-person school board who really have defunded the police by 35%, which is amazing, and have moved $46 million into schools with black concentrations. There are almost no majority black schools in L.A. anymore, which is unbelievable. So we've had here, and I'll say even Tom Hayden became basically a corrupted Democrat by the time, and I had worked with him in Newark. So this is all to say, how good are any of these people really? How much do they want to fight? Let's talk about taking on the police. Who's going to consistently take on the police as a priority? And so I have two questions that are related. Let me just go slow. It seems to me that you could make the case that I'll say in L.A. because I know the numbers better, that out of the $10 billion budget, about $2 billion is directly allocated to police and another billion is sneaking around with the police, right? One could be concerned about crime without wanting police brutality, without wanting mass arrests of young people for doing nothing. Why can't we win the argument that if seven people are shot, what does it have to do about arresting your kid for marijuana? What does it have to do with arresting your kid for fair evasion, for eating a sandwich on the train, for any of the millions of black codes? All right, that's why we want to cut the police by 50%. And we've had good conversations with people in the black community who are concerned about crime and can also figure out about civil rights as well. Why is that such a hard argument to win? And how, let's start with the first, how hard did Maya fight that fight? How hard and how well? Well, she didn't win, so I don't know if she won it well. I'm not saying that winning an election is the only metric of doing it well. She fought it pretty, you know, pretty hard, Eric. I was actually quite surprised in some of the debates. I mean, maybe some of the other activists in New York would feel otherwise, but I think within the realm of New York City politics and in the realm of trying to win an election in a primary, which is, right. you know, pretty, you know, Eric Adams had a quote I saw, which I thought was 
somewhat interesting where he said that social media doesn't win elections. People on Social Security do. Right. And like it's not say that older people always are a certain type of way, but within the context of a New York City primary, I thought Maya Wiley actually pushed the boundaries fairly further than I than I thought she would. Um, she wasn't for abolition of the police. No, nor do we expect her to be. No, she wasn't for you know completely gutting NYPD budget, but. It was on her website. It was in her talking points. She spoke out about it quite often on the campaign trail and didn't, I don't think, try to hedge her bets on it. So I thought Maya Wiley actually did a really good job on like holding firm on that. Well, I don't want to lose that, James, because, you know, you and I talk offline or whatever all the time. I think that speaks volumes good for her. I don't agree that winning the election is the most important. I don't agree with that. Yes. I think winning the terms of the debate, the right has lost elections for years and then they came to power. If she came in a close third and held the line on the police on a $1 billion cut and didn't back down, I think that has to be really elevated as one of the victories of the campaign. I mean that. Because we'll come back to that, but I, I have a lot of obviously, I take electoral politics very seriously. I believe in it as a contestation. You know what I mean? I don't believe in, you get what I'm saying. These elections are very important. That's my point. So if she came within, whatever she came in, came in third, right? And a close third, isn't that correct? Yeah, and in the, actually the first count of the ballots, because, you know, we have ranked choice voters. Right. In the first count of the first uh, votes, she was in second. Right. So when they, by the time they did all the counting of the different ballots and the rankings, then she did end up third, a close third, as you said. But in the first pass, she was the second choice. Well, I want to say one more round, if this is okay, James, on the police and elections. And I want your response, obviously. And then I want you to talk to our listeners about ranked choice because everybody's trying to figure out, you know, issues of democratic elections and stuff like that. This is Eric Mann talking to James and talking with James Burke. See, I see this country as a white settler state. That's not just rhetorical. I just saw a great quote from Jean Genet talking about George Jackson. He said most white people, when they see a tree, they think of a black person hanging from it. And I believe that. I mean, all the, I believe that of white liberals. I believe that of white racists. I think there are so few white people that will really, really, really fight for black people. So you're in a terrible mess if you take on the police because the police equals, you know, the anti-black force, the anti-labor force. So... I think if we win, if a major candidate, and in this case a black candidate, fought all the way, the question for me would be if I was in New York and I was friends with Maya, whose father was my greatest mentor, I would say, great, now let's build a machine around what you want. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Let's build a political organization that could be a force in the, the ongoing politics of the city. So we'll come back to that. So two questions. I'm really proud of what she did. And the second question is, do you think she's trying to build a long-term kind of political movement? 
I know it's hard to say right after the election, but in terms of you are close to a lot of these conversations. I don't know about Maya in particular, but I think the movement that she's a part of, which she'll be, I assume, continuing to be a part of, 100%. The, the groups that supported her, the activist organizations and activist leaders and people like yourself, Eric, who supported her in New York and outside of New York. You know, I think that despite, I think it's a complicated, you know, feeling after Eric Adams win, right. you know, won the election. But I feel like we still made quite a bit of progress on this election, you know, stepping outside of New York City even for a little bit. I don't know if you and your listeners have been following what's going on in Buffalo. Tell us about it, but James. A, but a young woman named India Walton uh, is poised to become the next mayor of uh, Buffalo, and she's a black woman, and she is a self-described democratic socialist. And she beat, I believe, a four-term incumbent who didn't even campaign because he didn't take this woman seriously. <laughs> um, Tell me her name again and our listener's name. India Walton. Got it. Definitely check out what she's yeah. doing because... This guy, um, who is the you know current mayor and hopefully no longer will be the mayor after this year, he's now mounting a writing campaign, and the whole establishment and then you know the police. Oh there, my God! Oh yeah, no, it's insane. And so now groups, national groups, groups from New York State, they're now supporting her even more so to try to thwart this attempt from this guy to basically stop this woman from becoming the next mayor. And I think for Channing, if, you know, he runs again, or for anyone listening who wants to run an insurgent, principled, grassroots, sort of bottom-up type campaign. I wasn't on her campaign, but I followed it. But India Walton is definitely a bright spot in the New York State primaries on June 22nd. And so, you know, Maya Wiley, I put her in that. I don't know where exactly she fits within that movement. I don't know where she personally wants to fit. But there is a, a growing movement that people like AOC and India Walton and Channing and yourself and many others are definitely a part of. And electoral organizing is just one part of it. And I, I know we're talking about the election today, and there's obviously you know things we need to do beyond elections, which are in some ways even more important. But this woman, India Walton, that's a, a very important story at a national level. And I think this whole Eric Adams narrative of, well, I'm like the new face of the Democratic Party at a national <laughs> right. level, well, so could India Walton say the same thing. Well, good for you, James, and I think what you're doing is great. I have a lot of thought, but I want to keep you going. Tell us a little about about the campaign you were involved in. It. Tell us about the the mechanics, because I take mechanics very seriously. I take numbers very seriously. I take votes very seriously. Members, you know, we have a thing as I say, members, dollars, and books. That's how you judge whether you succeeded. What are your mm-hmm. metrics, right? Oh, yeah. So tell us about the work you did on the ground. Describe a week, not a day, like a week of you wake up on a, well, you're never going to sleep, basically, but when you sort of wake up, look a week ahead in the last two weeks of the campaign. Tell us what you were doing. Describe your days for us. Sure, sure. Up at 6. At the train station at 7 a.m., trying every day to cover every single train station, not myself personally, but, you know, organizing a group of volunteers and people to cover every single train station in the district with people passing out materials and talking about the election, finishing that up, 
having a debrief at 9 o'clock with Carmen De La Rosa, the candidate who I 9 p.m. Let's be very clear. You're saying 9 p.m. Oh, no, 9 a.m., right after the train. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yep, so our good. Train, Got it. train visibility, you know, 7 a.m. till 9, you know, call, debrief, prep for the day, right o'clock, you know, right after breakfast. Got it. Um, you know, then just continuing to organize the, the the volunteers and getting all the endorsements who we gather to get them plugged in and just all the regular stuff that any campaign, electoral or not, would be doing to plan things and implement things, but be out at the uh, the schools or back out at the train stations around three o'clock. Right. So you're maybe in the office for a couple hours doing some coordination and some logistics and things like meetings, whatnot. But then you're back out in the field. You come back after an hour or two, you get your materials, you get your volunteers prepped and everything's ready to go. And then you go knock on doors till, you know, eight, eight thirty. come back, get some food, debrief, plan the next day and rinse, wash and repeat, Eric. It, it was basically <laughs> a city council race in New York, and even though New York's the biggest city in the country, it's still manageable enough where you can knock on a ton of doors. You know, if this was a presidential election or something, you, you got to do a lot more than just the, the visibility and the door knocking, but for anybody who wants to you know, run for office or work on a campaign at a local level, if you're sitting in front of a computer for like five, six hours a day, like from my experience, you're probably not in a good place. Like, you got to be out there talking about That's right. And, and just pounding the pavement every day. You know, in L.A., it's going to be different. It might not be subway stations. It might be bus stations. It might be on the bus. No, it's stations. subway stations and bus stations. 818-985-5735 if you'd like to talk to James Burke. 818-985-5735. How did people respond? Like you're at a, a subway station, right? People are coming out. They're being bombarded with all kinds of literature. Sometimes there may be two or three candidates at the uh, at the stop. How do you make the connection? How do you get people to say, yeah, I want to talk to you? You know, I feel like it's like organizing, Eric. you got to have some good, compelling, like, opening. But for me, I just always tried to ask questions and listen. Um, I saw the scenario you just described. I can imagine that playing out so many times where I'd be out there with Carmen or just by myself and a volunteer and, You'd have the other candidates out there, and there would be like a little street battle, you know? It'd be right. like everyone has their T-shirts, everyone has their materials, and you're kind of out there at the same moment competing. But, you know, people people don't want to just be thought of as another vote to be had. You know, right. people are experiencing a lot. People are going through a lot. Like this COVID situation before, obviously people have been dealing with a lot of issues. And so I always just personally try to, to shut the heck up and ask questions and make connections. So if people were you know, concerned about housing issues, then I talk about the housing platform. If people were concerned about the buses getting cut or whatever, you know, just connecting on the issues and then connecting the issues to solutions or to the political agenda of the candidate who I was working for, and just connecting in a real way, not having just sort of sound bites and talking points. And, you know, sometimes naturally when you're organizing, you say those things, in that way, because you've said them like a thousand times in a day. Right. But to the best of my ability, just connecting to someone as if I just met them at a coffee shop and I was getting to know them. Yeah. Uh, connecting I, it to the political ideology, too, of the campaign. I've been trying to, I have been talking to organizers my whole life about 
the art of the conversation, not the speech, not, you know, I mean, that you're having a conversation. When I was working with Channing and we had to get the signatures, and I'm in front of Albertson, there was this guy who was being paid by the signature for some moderately BS cause, and I was just going after him and positioning against him because he was, we were fighting for things, and finally he said to me, you are so damn aggressive. And I said, that's the most greatest compliment. <laughs> of course, <laughs> that's the point, brother. I am very aggressive. So oh, yeah. tell us about Carmen. Well, what did people like about her? Because she won. She, she won. Did. It was a big I, thing. Yeah, there's so many reasons why I'm sure people in the community liked her, but I think a lot of people saw themselves in her. Um, she, Carmen Delarose is the woman who I worked for and right. still working for. She has a general election in November with a Republican who still win, of course, that election, but uh, she's I'm still working with her now. And she was born in the Dominican Republic. It's a very heavily Dominican. It's the center of the Dominican diaspora right. in the United States was Washington Heights. And now it's become more spread out and you have pockets in the Bronx and in Rhode Island and in Pennsylvania and all over the country. But Washington Heights is the, the center of the Dominican diaspora. And I think Carmen, despite her being born in the Dominican Republic, she came to New York as a child, as a young child at three, I believe. And she was um, adopted, actually, by a Dominican family who was living here at the time. Huh. kind of interesting. So she has this really, like, say, like, beautiful story and start, you know, coming to New York as a young child, being adopted by a Dominican family. And she's young. She's only 35 years old. Wow. So she can connect to the younger generation who's first generation Dominican, who maybe their parents came here and, you know, they went to schools here and stuff like that. But she can connect to those younger folks and not just the Dominican people in the community, but definitely to the young Dominicans. But also she can connect really well with the older Dominicans who see her as a little bit of a bridge between the, the older and the newer generation. So I think on just a human level and a personal level, like she's a very nice person, a very warm person. She's very proud of her Dominican roots, but is also like very proud of being a New Yorker from the Heights and from uptown. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she, you, you walk the neighborhood with Carmen just to get a, a cafecito or something. And like, everybody knows her. Right. Everybody's like, you know, recognizing her and, giving her high fives and saying stuff that I didn't always understand. Spanish, <laughs> but obviously, usually very positive. Um, but then, you know, Washington Heights and Inwood, for those who you know, know or don't know the city, west of Broadway, we tended to call it, which we don't want to like divide a neighborhood like that, but for lack of better words, west of Broadway tended to be more affluent and more, um, right. more white. Yep. And unfortunately, there's a bit of divide in the community. And, you know, for some reasons, which are past, you know, previous to this campaign and goes back even before my time working uptown. But we definitely, in some senses, had to sort of struggle to get some of those votes on the other side. And it's really interesting. This is a conversation for maybe a longer podcast or something, but the Working Families Party actually endorsed a different candidate in the race. Right who was the candidate, more or less, who was aligned from the West of Broadway crowd. Uh And and it was really interesting because, you know, I consider myself very left and very progressive and tend to appreciate the working families and the people they endorse. But I was knocking on doors, Eric, every day with Carmen, pretty much. And 
when we were knocking on doors in the Heights and in Inwood and in the public housing projects there, you're seeing the real struggles of working families and immigrants and people of color. And they liked Carmen. But then you would knock on the doors of the sort of more, and I, I hate to generalize, but, you know, it is somewhat of a generalization of the district. You, you knock on these doors where they were against Carmen, and they tended to be sort of the white gentrifiers who, for a variety of reasons, they didn't want Carmen to be in there. And Hold so on a second. You, you, of course you can generalize. That's called structural analysis, bro. I have a caller yes. here. Channing Martinez wants to talk to you uh, from L.A. Hey, Channing, how you doing? Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines. You're on with James Burke. Hey, I'm so glad to be on the show. I, I've been listening to this show, and I'm just flabbergasted at the level of details and the level of metrics. And I know you said that you're an organizer, but in organizing, we use metrics as well. Just want to throw that in there. But it's really interesting to learn about, so like we ran a, a campaign here in LA, as Eric is talking about, I ran for city council and we were learning as we go, we went. And so to hear about all the metrics and how you were looking at the Democratic Party and the movement, all these different things has been, uh, I think this show is so fruitful to understand what it really takes to make an insurrection in electoral politics. I think the thing I'm, I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to is if you can talk a little bit about what the movement looked like behind candidates. Uh, I know that there tends to be, I keep hearing a lot about elections where center Democrats in New York don't really run or they don't really campaign because they didn't take it serious. But in LA, I think we have the opposite where center Democrats actually really do run. And in fact, in the race that I went in, I forced Mark Lindley Thomas to run when he really realized that I was taking him on the police. And so I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about the movement um, in New York and how that played out. Yeah. And so tell us about, in particular, you've been mentioning the rise of DSA, who we are on very good terms with and better. Tell us about the DSA Working Families Party dynamic with a little more focus on DSA. If that's okay. Sure. Sure. And hi, Channing. Nice to hear your voice. And, you know, congratulations on your race when you ran and pushing that candidate, I'm sure, in many ways. That's a beautiful thing. I just got an email, I don't know if it was yesterday or today, from one of the DSA candidates that I followed. And it really left a mark on me. And it kind of goes to what Channing, I think, was talking about, perhaps, which is the candidate loss, unfortunately. But he lost in a district where actually the candidate who won was also very good, too. So it was like a big blow to the movement. But he wrote an email sort of thanking his volunteers. You know, the standard, like the campaign is over, blah, blah, blah. But he had a real ask at the end of the email. And it wasn't a donate to my campaign fund to, like, cover the report. Right, you know, right. Like, he actually said, join the, the, the Brooklyn DSA chapter, get involved, join a working group. The movement continues. The work continues. And it was a genuine, like, pitch. You could tell just from the tone of this email that, yeah, the guy lost his race, and it's a shame for his campaign. But it, it wasn't about the campaign. It was like what you said earlier, Eric, about if Maya Wiley moved the conversation, did she really lose, you know? And so I think that that's the, the interest. I, I wasn't in the DSA uh, electoral working group, and they made these endorsements and these decisions, but 
One thing I think I think was smart was that they only endorsed six candidates in the New York City Council. And as I mentioned, there were about 30 or something, you know, 32 or so open seats. So if they really wanted to, they could have made they could have made 51 if they wanted to endorse in every race. They could have made 32 if they want. You know what I mean? Like they could have really pushed the boundaries of their endorsements. But I think they were really smart to just stay within the realm of where their capacity was and push really hard for those candidates. And I was looking at some of the numbers today before the call or before the show. And in two of the races in particular where they endorsed, one in Brooklyn and one in, although they're both in Brooklyn, just different neighborhoods, this uh, like super PAC funded by these hedge fund people and mega rich folks, they donated $100,000 to fight these people in each district. Right. And now keep in mind, the districts, the city council races, the ceiling for matching funds, we have a matching fund system right. in New York, is 190000 So basically, if you think about it, these DSA candidates, say they raise the 190000 threshold, then they have the challengers who they were fighting, the other candidates, who also could have raised 190000 And then on top of that, they were fighting super PACs, which were raising six figures to stop them and to support anybody to beat the DSA candidate. Right, James, so, I'm going to hold you for a minute because Barbara Lott Holland wants to say hello. Barbara from South LA, how you doing? Hello. I'm doing good. This show is very uh, energizing for me. And I just wanted to say, James, thank you for the work that you're doing and the longevity that you have in this. And that brings me to my question. I have been doing this now for over 20 years, and I'm wondering, like, sometimes, you know, we get we get a little down, and what things that you use to lift you up, with me, it's like a, a double package of Hostess uh, cupcakes. But I know that we need more than that. Is it how do you uh, energize yourself and go back out there? I mean, the election is open, but... I know tomorrow you're going to be back on the pavement again. And what what do you use, and how do you re-energize yourself daily? Um, thank you, Barbara, and it's nice to hear your voice. Um, you know, this is a lifetime commitment, and I've been doing it for 15 years already, so it's just what I do, you know? Like, I can't really think of anything else I'd rather do to spend these moments I have on this earth is you know, fighting for issues I care about. So, and I love New York and it's not just about New York. I love, you know, people in general. So, you know, I'll fight on campaigns no matter where I need to be, but I just love the work, Barbara. And of course everyone needs rest. And I think the younger generation, I hear it, you know, come up more. I think I'm not in the younger generation anymore. I'm 40. (laughs) No, you're definitely Uh, not. But they talk a lot about wellness and balance. And I, I respect that. And I think that's really smart. So, I do feel like maybe our movements could learn a little bit from the the younger generation, but I, I just really love the work, Barbara. Like actually, at seven thirty in the morning, like I don't maybe want to be there every day at the trains, but I actually enjoy it. So yes, of course, I need my breaks and I need to refuel every so often, and you know, go back to sleeping in occasionally and eating healthy and exercising and talking to friends and seeing friends. But the work is also sustaining as well. And I'm going to get the last word, Barbara and Channing and James. First of all, James, you know that's big props for what you did. Congratulations to Carmen. We'd like to get to know her. You know, as you say, 
I'm just doing a. I, I just did a tribute to George Jackson, who was killed in prison, and you know he said, "Well, either you break the system or it breaks you," and what you just said is, it's what I do, right? We wake up in the morning because this is who we are. We are what we do. And these are very encouraging stories about New York, about Buffalo. We want to have you on again because you bring an organizer's perspective. I think electoral politics is very, very important. And no, not primary, but it's a stupid, you know, it's an unnecessary kind of position. And I'll just end with saying this. We learned of many things we learned in Cheney's campaign, is even though the Strategy Center has always been political, 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 until one of our members ran is when the light bulb went off. Oh, so that's, you're really political. (laughs) And (laughs) that was not the case in the 60s, but we learned that that was important, participating in the people's election. So, James, go watch the Heights. You're still got about... Three or four games left in the NBA Finals. Go do something very bourgeois for a day or two, and then go back to the proletariat. You got it, Eric. I appreciate you having me on the show, and nice to talk to you, Channing and Barbara, and I look forward to working together moving forward. All right, everybody. Uh, So we're going to say goodbye. Uh, You were listening to James Burke. You're listening to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement-building show. Our engineer is D'Angelo Jones, who's very, very helpful. Uh, Channing and Barbara and I are, whatever we are, we wake up the same morning and do the same thing. And the last thing I got, Strategy Center organizers, is they were up at 5 in the morning, folks, to meet the first train. And they came back at 3 in the afternoon for the next set of trains, and we're going to do the same. Okay, take good care. We'll see you next Tuesday. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption.